Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. So we're starting this new series called Lost and Found. And uh, this is not lost and found like at the middle school. Uh, You know what I mean by lost and found at the middle school? Any of your schools send you pictures occasionally of like all the stuff in the lost and found that no one wants and just beg you to come get it because they're gonna give it away to someone else? That's all the stuff that everyone's forgotten about, everyone's neglected, everyone doesn't want. Uh, This is not that kind of lost and found. This is actually uh, something far more important. And whether you realize it or not, this is the most important question in your life is uh, are you saved? Have you been found by Jesus? Have you, has your heart been captured by him? You know, we love to sing the, the line in Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found. But uh, very few of us have taken time to really stop and think about what that means and understand how salvation actually works itself out in real time of our lives and how biblically that kind of comes through. And so this week we're gonna kiss, kick off our series and we're gonna talk about lost. You know, I've always been told if you have good news and bad news, always start with the bad news first. And so we're gonna start off talking about lost and then we're gonna talk about found next week. And then we're gonna talk about heaven bound the third week and kind of where this is going. But today is kind of that, let's get into the tension of this thing. Let's kind of take a deep dive into some of the heaviness of what does it mean that we are lost? One of the things I've realized in a, in a Christian culture, in a culture where a lot of people have experience in church, where we've kind of, we, we know these songs, we do these things, there's kind of this tip of your hat towards Christianity, that there's a, a lot of kind of misconception about what salvation really is, and maybe a lot of false assumptions about what it is. And so we want to we jump in and look. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, uh, we're going to look at... Uh, primarily be in Romans today, but we're going to skip around an awful lot and hit some different places. But if you want to like put your finger someplace and have something to look at in the actual text, Romans is probably your best bet. Uh, but today's going to be one of those uh, situations where we, we kind of look at the heavy stuff. You think about movies you go see, think about a Marvel movie. What if you showed someone, you wanted to introduce them to the Marvel universe, and you started with just the last two minutes of a film when all the tensions resolved? And all you see is people hugging and high-fiving and everything's happy and you go, you show them those last two minutes of a, of, of a Marvel film and they have no experience at all in, in any kind of the Marvel universe and you show them that little bit and go, man, wasn't that awesome? Like, how do you think they'd feel about that film? Well, there'd be, no, there'd be no power to it. There'd be no ethos. There'd be no connection to it because you didn't understand if you, if you didn't live through the characters and the problems and the tension and the betrayals and the, the kind of ins and outs and the enemy and the, the battle and all the things that happened, you don't understand all the high fives and celebration at the end. So today, what we're gonna do is we're gonna go back. We don't wanna start at the end. We're gonna go back and we're gonna get into some of the tension of really what salvation is all about. We're gonna look at that. And why is it so important that the lost are found? Uh, I think, and it's interesting, in Luke 15, there's three parables that Jesus tells that we call the, the lost parables. They're not lost parables because we lost the parables, but they're parables about God's heart for the lost. And he starts off in the first of those parables, he talks about the lost sheep. And, it, and when the sheep's finally found, he says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than any, the, the 99 who don't need to repent. One loss that's found, more joy will happen in heaven. 
It's hard to imagine heaven having more joy, but that's what Jesus said. Another one's a lost coin. It says, I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then there's the parable of the lost son of the prodigal son. And he comes around at the end and, and the father in that story that Jesus is telling to describe to us the heart of God our father says, it's right that we rejoice for the lost was found. He, my son who is dead is alive. And so there's this kind of overwhelming joy that's there whenever someone is found. And in fact, Jesus told us this is the primary reason he came. He said, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And so we understand this is a big idea biblically. And if Jesus says that really is uh, what, what, he, what he's here for, um, that, that idea of seeking and saving the lost becomes this very important thing in the scriptures, right? But it's important that we understand what does it mean to be lost? Because let me tell you what Jesus didn't say or what the Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say uh, Jesus came to give high fives to all the good people in the world who are doing just fine on their own. Like that verse, you're not gonna find that in your Bible if you're looking for that. That's, that's not what happened. No, Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Now, so the lost is this group of people that apparently are in need of rescue. Apparently they've gotten themselves in some kind of predicament that they cannot get themselves out of, that they've worked themselves into a place where they need someone from the outside to reach down in and rescue them and pull them out of the muck and mire of, of the problem that they're in and save them so that the lost can be found. This is really where we wanna to go today. And here's what I want you to understand and what I think you're gonna to see today is before you can be found, you have to realize that you're lost. Before you can be saved, you have to admit you need a savior. Before you can, before you can be saved, you have to admit, man, I need saving. There's something in me that needs rescue. So it's clear that these lost people are people that need rescue. Why, why is it that uh, you think, that I think Jesus says that a lost person being found can create more joy in heaven and more joy amongst the angels. Well, one is I think that, that the angels and from a heavenly perspective, they see the cosmic battle kind of out, out working. They, they see the big picture. They, they have a, a glimpse of life that we don't see. We tend to see this micro kind of moment by moment uh, work outworking these things, but we don't see the grand scale. And I think they do, which is why when someone's found, they rejoice. I think we find a clue about this really in what we see in the Bible about angels. In fact, the Bible teaches that angels are, let me just say this clearly, angels, uh, people don't, grow up, don't, don't go to heaven and become angels. Uh, angels are the entirely different sort of being. They're spirit beings, there's humans, and there's, a, there's angels, and those are different creatures that God created. Angels are not eternal. Angels are not sovereign. Angels are not omnipresent. Angels are not omnipowerful. They're created beings under the, glory, under the, the rule of God. And so there's different, there's angels and there's people. But we get a glimpse of even what uh, the, the, the stakes are for our lives when you see what the stakes are for angels. Because in fact, Second Peter, uh, what you see about angels are, you see that there's holy angels that are with the Father and they do his bidding and they minister on his behalf and they work for us uh, at, the, at the bidding of the Father. But there's also other angels who it says will be cast into eternal fire. And so Second Peter 2, 4 says, but God did not spare his angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So the angels in heaven, they know what's at stake in this thing of life, in the cosmic outworking of God's plan. They see what's at stake. And so when someone who's lost is found, when someone who's dead is brought to life, they rejoice because they understand the consequences of everything that's going on here. 
Friends, we were created to be worshipers of God. That's the ultimate purpose you exist is to enjoy God and to make much of God forever. That's why we're here and why we were created and why we, why, why we live. And yet to worship someone is to, it means to, to ascribe worth to someone, that you, you are so connected to the Father that you, you value him and, and uh, that you ascribe worth and value and obedience and delight and joy in the person of God the Father. That's what you were created to do, that your heart ought to constantly be, be resonating with the goodness of God and enjoying his person and his, in a relationship with him. But instead, what happened is humanity rebelled against him and we created a revolution. They began to say, no, we think we can do better on our own. In fact, Ecclesiastes 7 says this, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So we talk about being saved. Part of what we're, what we're talking about is being rescued from our own scheming about how we can live better on our own than we can under God's rule and reign. So that's part of what it is when we talk about sin. And when you understand kind of that, what that verse says, it says, God made us upright. In fact, in Genesis 1, where, we talk, where it talks about creation, it says that God says, it's almost just boringly redundant. It just says his creation was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was good, it was good. And it gets to humanity, it says it was very good. God created us good. And yet in Genesis 3, just a couple chapters later, sin breaks into the world. And theologians call that the fall of man, meaning we fell from our position, we fell from our relationship with God and, and everything became dis, disoriented and destructed uh, from that moment on. And in fact, that's why they call it the fall is that there we, we fall into sin and everything changed. Uh, there's a verse at the end of, of that chapter in Genesis 3 where it says, God drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every, that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So there's a separation that took place between man and God. God drove them out of the, the garden of his perfect provision and protection and sent them out and he put a guard there to make sure they couldn't get back in. So there was some kind of change that began to shift there and he began to see this problem. There's real consequences to sin is the lesson that we're meant to learn from that, se from that segment of scripture. This week, uh, I was talking with one of my boys and uh, he'd had a bunch of friends over and one of his friends had left a pair of shoes out on our porch. And I kept telling him, I was like, hey, can you get those shoes and bring them in? He's like, yeah, 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 I'll get to, hey, can you get those shoes and bring them in? We didn't get it. So finally I texted him that night and said, hey, Jake, buddy, I need you to go get the shoes. He said, man, dad, I'm, he texted back, said, I'm resting right now. Do I have to go now? And I said, yes. And he said, can I do it later? And I said, you'll forget. And he said, well, but I won't, I won't forget. And I said, Jake, you will forget. And when you forget, here's going to be the consequence. You're going to have to do an extra hour of chores this week if they're still there in the morning. And he said, I got it. Next morning, what do you think I saw on the porch? Shoes had not moved an inch. Uh, here's, here's the thing, Jake. I told Jake, I said, here's the expectation. Here's the consequence. Here's what it is. And he says, I got this. And he ended up having to, having to work all weekend on all kinds of fun stuff, which is good for me. Um, <laughs> but there's consequences to our actions that really do play out. And friends, we, we don't need a savior because we have it all together. We need a savior because we're a mess. We need a savior because we can't save ourselves. We need a savior because we don't do it all the way we're supposed to. God, uh, God told us who he is. God told us how to live. God told us the consequences of what's gonna happen if we don't obey him. And yet we don't follow through and do the things we're supposed to do. 
And so there's consequences of not living under his leadership. And we understand throughout the Bible that God's constantly trying to get people's attention. He's trying to help them understand the importance of these things. And we tend to just get busy with life and we get busy about our own stuff and we don't stop and think about the consequences and the eternal nature of all the things that are going on around us. And so one of the places I see this is in, in Exodus, kind of few chapter, or the next book in the Bible, uh, God is still trying to work on the sin problem with humanity. And so in Exodus, God's gonna come in and give them the law. He's gonna say, let me spell out for you really clearly all the expectations of what it is you're going to do. But he wants to get their attention, help them understand the severity and the seriousness of this. And so whenever he gives the law, it comes down on a, on a mountain and Moses goes up and God's going to communicate this to him and all the people of Israel are gonna watch. And I just wanna read to you this and tell me if this would get your attention, okay? Uh, if you need to close your eyes and just think, I just want you to absorb this. Think about what would the soundtrack be in the movie if this, was, if this was unfolding in real time. Let me just read this to you. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people of the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended, in, descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like a smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai on top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to them, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest the Lord breaks out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And so God gave them the law and the Israelites promised, all that you have commanded, we will do. Well, how did Israel do? See, God got their attention, right? He communicated very clearly that he is holy and they are, they are to be fearful before him, that they are to be removed from him, that they're, they're, not, they're, to, they're to tremble before him. And he told them clearly what they're gonna do and what the Israelites do. They go, oh, we got this. Everything you said, we'll do it. All that you've commanded, we will do. And did Israel follow through on that? Well, no, you read any part of the rest of your Bible and you know, and these guys fell down over and over and over and over. In fact, they look a lot like us, don't they? Because we fall down over and over and over and over just like they did. And it's not because we don't know what to do. It's because we don't have it in here to do all that we're called to do. We can't do it on our own. Friends, we need a savior. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is that it doesn't really sugarcoat the sin of all people. Uh, but sometimes I think we get so wallowed in that that we don't take sin very seriously. So we get so comfortable in our sin because we all go, yeah, I know, we all blow it. We all blow it. We all blow it. And you don't really see anything. So you can get kind of stagnant in your sin, but it's not... It, but, but I think it's important for us to stop and kind of try to step out of that. Have you ever been on an airplane and had to sit next to someone with really bad BO? And you just sit there and the whole flight, you're just going, dude, do you not know? Do you not realize how bad you smell? Do, 
can you not afford the deodorant? Because I will buy you some. You know, and you just, you sit there and you just, you're going through this in your head and just thinking, if you could just get downwind of yourself and smell yourself, you would know that you need to do something about this problem. But oftentimes I think people so long have lived in it that you just wonder if they don't even realize it because they've smelled it for so long they don't know there's anything different. Friends, we can compare ourselves to others and feel pretty good, feel like maybe we should get a pass, but holiness doesn't grade on a curve. You're either holy or you're not. To quote famous theologian, Master Yoda, do or do not, there is no try. Like you're either holy or you're not holy. And what we see in the scriptures is that we're not. And so when it comes to holiness, looking at God's holiness keeps us from minimizing our own sin, keeps us from masquerading and putting on a mask that makes us look better than we are. Because God's holiness kind of cracks it open and lets us see who we really are. And I think that's what the point of the mountaintop experience that Moses and the Israelites had was supposed to give them. He says, do not let them come up lest the Lord break out against them. Can you think of anything more terrifying than the God of fire and the, the voice of thunder breaking out against you? Because you have stepped across a line which he said, do not step across. That's the picture he wanted you to get and he wants to get our attention. And one guy, I love this phrase, one theologian talked about this uh, kind of our relationship with holiness. And he talked about mysterium tremendum. And I know that sounds really, isn't that just a cool sounding phrase? Like it's one of those I read and I'm like, I don't even know Latin, but it just sounds cool. Mysterium tremendum. And what he means is it's the awful mystery, meaning the mystery that's filled with awe is what he's talking about. The presence of the holy gives us that kind of a dread. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, says that it's moments like these that make us say things like, my blood ran icy cold, or the hair stood up on the back of my neck. That when you get in the, in the presence of holiness, there's this kind of like anticipation moment of something big that's going on that just is otherworldly and beyond us in a way that, man, I, don't, I can't wrap my arms around this. I just kind of have to step back and, with a sense of awe at the mystery of God's holiness. He went on to say, it's like the old song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And I love that song because it just kind of lingers. And it says, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. That when you think about the wrath of God poured out on someone, it ought to make us tremble. And we have mixed feelings about holiness because there's a sense in which we're terrified of it, but there's also a sense in which we desire it. There's a sense in which it, it frightens us and we aren't sure what to do with it and we're scared to death of it, but we also have a sense that, man, I can't live without that and I want to know that more. And so there's this kind of weird tension in our lives when you think about this idea of God's holiness. So let's go, let's go New Testament. I wanna show you an important phrase in the early part of the book of Romans. Uh, Romans is, I think, the most kind of logical and thorough explanation of salvation. And uh, Paul really breaks it down. He begins to work through and just creates this kind of linear argument where he just poses a question and provides an answer, poses another question, provides an answer, and kind of logically uh, unpacks how it is that we're saved and, and kind of this theology of our salvation. And in this um, he starts off in 116, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So he's gonna tell us about the power of God for salvation, but it's interesting, he starts like we did today with the bad news. 
not the good news. And so in Romans 1, he's going to start off and he's going to talk about the problems that we see. And I want to encourage you that before you can be saved, you need to know you're in need of rescue. And Romans is going to build the case of how desperately we need to be rescued. In fact, Romans 1, I want you to underline, if you're an underliner, let me give you a phrase you can underline. It shows up twice in Romans 1, uh, 21, and then again in, in Romans 2, 1. He says that we are, what? Without excuse. That you are without excuse. And Romans 1 says all people are without excuse. In fact, he deals in Romans 1 with all people everywhere and says that no one has an excuse for not worshiping God. In fact, it doesn't matter where you are on this planet. He says that the creation of this world so echoes that there is a creator and the beauty of this world so points that there must be a greater, greater being somewhere that made this stuff that it ought to make you run to the end and try to find out who he is. And so just your presence in the world ought to make you look for a creator to worship. And so the, the created world has made God's presence obvious to us. Have you ever been in a situation where you're outside and all of a sudden something flies overhead and everything turns to shadow? And all of a sudden you experience kind of this moment of darkness or maybe you're sitting in your office and all of a sudden like all the light that's coming in from outside just disappears and it becomes dark. And you just, you realize that, man, there's, the shadow is, is a real experience, isn't it? But you know, when you see a shadow, the thing about a shadow is there's something that's more real that is creating the shadow, that it's just blocking the light. And so what we see is in our creation, there ought to be, we ought to see that as, and there's a shadow that ought to lead us back to what's the real source that created all this, that made all this, that gives us this life that we get to experience. And so there's something that we need, to, we need to continue to perceive. Uh, Romans 1 goes on to say that every person's conscience bears witness to the universal standards for life in God's world. That, that every person has a conscience and because we have a conscience, there's this kind of resonant thing that ought to be there that, that tells you that there's some kind of a standard bearer in the universe that's put all these things upon us. And so every person is, is accountable. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived and ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So in the things that have been made by God, those things ought to make us look for, the creation ought to make us look for a creator. The fact that God has revealed himself to us says that we should perceive in our consciences that there's a standard to the universe that would make us seek out the God of the universe in order to worship him. In fact, though, it says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. See, they, people, all people were created to worship. We exist to honor God, to give thanks to God, to enjoy God. And yet, though we're enjoying all the creation that God has provided, we deny oftentimes in our action the creator that made us. And so we become more fixated on the stuff than on the one who made all the stuff. In fact, there's a two active phrases here. It says that they are now, and it says suppress the, they suppress the truth. It's kind of this active thing of they are now suppressing and, and pushing down the truth. They're ignoring it. They're, they're kind of smothering it so that it can't get out. 
And it says they are now being filled with unrighteousness, meaning they're pursuing things that are apart from God. And so it starts off Romans 1. The, the point of Romans 1 is all people are held accountable. All people are without excuse. All people should be worshipers of God. Romans 2, he's going to shift. He's going to say, okay, but what about the religious people? What's the very first thing you see in Romans 2? Therefore, you also have no excuse, O man, everyone who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself. So there may, what is, Paul is going to build the argument. He's going to say, okay, what about the religious people? Well, the religious people may say, look, I understand all those people out there are without excuse, but I'm a very religious person. I, I, I follow a moral code. I try to do all the right things. I'm involved in a religious ceremony. I'm involved in all these things. I, I could quote some scripture. I can quote some things. I, I can actually sing worship songs. I have a couple of them memorized. Like, you know, so surely I'm okay. And what's Paul say? You too are without excuse. In fact, you just have more that you're accountable for because you've experienced more of God's revelation. And so you too are just as accountable as they are. And so we go back and remember the, the law that we looked at in Exodus that God came down on the mountain and he revealed to Moses in that episode that we looked at. And what happens in that is God gives the law to Moses. He gives the 10 commandments and all the other law and he, and he communicates that to Moses, he gives it to God's people. And then they say, what? All that you have commanded, we will do. Well, see, what you find out is the law, having the law doesn't enable you to perform the law. It just shows you where you mess up. What the scriptures say is the law sort of unmasks the places where you stepped across the line. It sets the boundaries. And then you look back and go, oh, I stepped across the line back there. Um, best illustration I heard on this was one of my mentors, and you guys have heard this before, a good kind of Oklahoma, Texas sort of analogy. But he said, the law was God kicking uh, the cow patty of your life and letting the stench out. It is the, the law lets you get downwind of yourself. You can actually smell the stuff on the inside. The law reveals that because it shows you all the places where you transgressed and where you stepped across the line. But the law can't actually save you. All the law does is show you where it is that you're in trouble. So then you get to Romans 3. So Romans 1, all people are without excuse. Romans 2, religious people are without excuse. Religion and, and knowing the truth of the law can't save you. Romans 3, verse 10 says we're all in the same predicament. In fact, where, he takes, where does he take his argument? He says, it is written, none is righteousness. No, not one. So just in case you were confused, none means no, not one. Uh, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. All, Romans 3.23, all have fallen short, sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all in a dire predicament here, right? Romans 5. Um, Paul continues to build his argument. He says, therefore, just as one man sinned, uh, through one, one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So through Adam, sin entered the world. We inherited sin from Adam. So there's an inherited sin that comes to us, but then we add to the, the sin we inherited, our own sins that we begin to pile up. And so we see that we've got this problem and we've all in kind of dire straits here, Right? So before you get completely depressed and run out the door, can I show you some good news? You guys ready for a little good news? Yep. Christ did not come because we had it all together. Christ came because we didn't. He didn't come because we were righteous. Christ came to make us righteous. Christ came into the world, it says, to save sinners. Can I give you three more places to underline in Romans that are more on the good side, um, but, but begin to tell us really the problem 
that are going to start to point us in the right direction. Romans 5, 6 says, while we were still weak. Weak could also be translated helpless. While we were still helpless, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners. Romans 5, 10, while we were enemies of God. Paul is making this argument. He's showing us the grace and the mercy of Christ that came. Lest you think that your job is to work yourself up and clean yourself up and pull yourself up by the bootstraps and do all the right things in order to make God love you. Paul wants to make it clear, no, there's none who is righteous. Meaning those are sins of commission, that we all commit sins of action that we do. There's no one whose righteous deeds can save them. That's sins of omission. There's not good things we ought to be doing that we can go and do enough of in order to make ourselves worthy. And so because of that, he says over and over, and while you were weak and helpless, while you were a sinner, while you were enemies, and then three times he says, Christ died for you. That's where the good news comes. But we need to understand that our role in this is to be weak, to be centered, to be an enemy. That's what we contributed to our salvation. Christ died for us while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were enemies. In fact, that's the gospel. That you are more sinful and broken than you ever realize, but at the same time, you're more loved and accepted in Christ than you ever dreamed possible. And that's the truth of the gospel. And Christ, it says, justifies the ungodly. And if he can justify the ungodly, he can justify you and he can justify me. The first thing we have to own is really who we are. And have you ever come to a place where you truly owned who you are? Where you truly were able to say, hey, I am weak. I am a sinner. I am an enemy of God apart from Christ. And you understand all that you are Christ, it says, died for the ungodly. He didn't die because we were so godly. He died because we needed a savior, because we were ungodly. And maybe you're the kind of person that feels surprised to even be here today. Like you feel surprised to be in a church building, that your life has been so full of ignoring God, neglecting God, going your own way, doing your own thing, and part, kind of enjoying it and and living apart from God, you've ignored his word, you've neglected his church, you've kind of done your own thing for as long as, you, as long as you can remember. Can I tell you there's two things you need to know from this passage, from, from the first part of Romans here? First is you are without excuse. Romans says you are without excuse. The second is Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for people just like you and just like me. Maybe you're a different sort of person. Maybe you've been around God's people a lot. Maybe you've, but maybe you've never really trusted God. Maybe you've even been on a serve team. Maybe you've been in a small group. Maybe you have some verses memorized and you've been around church. You, you've put money in the offering bucket occasionally. Maybe you've tried to be a good sort of person, but you've never really been saved by God and made him the Lord of your life. I tell you, you need to know two things too. You are without excuse. And Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for people just like you. That's good news. And that's what the scriptures want us to understand. Friends, can I tell you that after decades of following Jesus, I feel my sin more deeply now than I ever have. Like I see my need for a savior more clearly now than I ever have. I didn't just throw a little Jesus on me and get myself cleaned up and then no longer need Jesus. I'm weak 
I'm a sinner. Apart from Jesus, I'd be an enemy of God. And yet Christ died for the ungodly that I might have life in him. Well, have you had enough talk about sin today? We're not done yet, so I hope not. We're gonna keep going. We need to see, I think, the extent of our sin in our lives and what the Bible says about how it affects us experientially so that we can see more clearly all that Christ saved us from. Sin, when sin came into the world, respect was replaced by rebellion. A clean conscience was replaced by guilt and shame. Trust was replaced by fear. Love was replaced by indifference. Friendship was replaced by conflict. Closeness was replaced by isolation. Authenticity was replaced by a masquerade. Peace was replaced by restlessness. We were created for worship. We were created to flourish, and yet sin disrupts it all. In fact, it says in the scripture that we have a sin nature, that it's become part and parcel to who we are, that we're sinners, and it's what naturally flows out of us. The biblical doctrine for that is total depravity. One guy said another way to think about that is pervasive depravity. I mean, it doesn't mean that you're as bad off as you could be, but it means that every area of your life is somehow touched and infected by this disease of sin that there's no way for you to go around it. In fact, sin affects our mind, our emotions, our, uh, our, uh, our will, our desires, our heart, our conscience, our body. Every aspect of our being, material and immaterial, is affected by sin. And so I wanted to give you just a list of ways that sin affects you and me apart from Jesus so that you understand the depth of what sin does in us and so that you can understand the beauty of what Christ has done for us. So let me just run through a quick list here. One, without Jesus, we are alienated from God. Isaiah 59, two says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Sin separates, isolates us from the God of the universe. Ephesians four says that we are alienated from the life of God. Habakkuk 1.3 says, you who are pure eyes than to see evil cannot look upon wrong. God is pure and he can't be connected in his holiness with the evil that we are. And so apart from Jesus, we're alienated from God. Apart from Jesus or without Jesus, we're also enemies of God. Romans 5 says, why we were enemies. Romans, Ephesians 2 says, in the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Do you catch what Paul's saying in Ephesians 2 there? That you were following the prince of the power of the air. You were following the prince of darkness. He goes on in Colossians 1, he says that we were transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ's marvelous light. And apart from Christ, we were literally living for the king of darkness. And we needed to be transferred from that kingdom to a new kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of light. We were also without Jesus. We were not just alienated from God and enemies of God. We were alienated from one another. Christ came, it says, for Christ himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There was a a dividing wall of hostility between the peoples of the earth because of of sin that that it infected the earth and Christ can be our peace to bring about restoration and make us one again. 
Without Jesus, we were slaves to sin. Romans 6 says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Without Jesus, we are also blind and confused. 2 Corinthians 4 says, in their case, the God of this world, meaning Satan, the, the evil one, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That you are blinded spiritually from seeing the truth of the beauty of Christ. Which is why other places scripture say that, that the gospel is a stumbling block to those who are outside. That for some, it's a stepping stone that builds you up. But if you don't have your eyes, the scales removed from your eyes to spiritually see him for who he is and you remain blinded, then you trip over the gospel and you trip over the beauty of Christ. First Corinthians 2 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. They're foolishness. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can even understand it? See, the problem is we're deceived and we're deceiving of others because in our sin nature, we're, our judgment's clouded. We suppress the truth and God gives us over to the ways in which, which we desire to go, but it leaves us blind and confused. Without Jesus, we're also dead. Ephesians 2.1 says, you were once dead in your trespasses and sin. There's a spiritual death means you have no vital connection to your heavenly father. And so you're spiritually dead with no life-giving relationship. Without Jesus, Ephesians 2 says, we're without hope and without God in the world. That you're separated from Christ, meaning you're separated from the hope of a future and separated from God himself. Without Jesus, we're also terrified of judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, and just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. See, on top of the, mo the mountain with Moses in Exodus, he, he continually set a line and said, do not let the people come up lest the Lord break out against them. Because in the holiness of God, he knows that eventually he has to punish sin. That there's, God, has, God is a God of love, but it's, God is also a God of justice. And in his justice, he's required and obligated by his very nature to punish sin. And so he eventually, though he's slow to anger, scriptures say, he eventually will break out against that which is sinful in judgment. R.C. Sproul says this about the nature of that punishment. He says, is the death penalty for sin unjust, by no means. Remember that God voluntarily created us. He gave us the highest privilege of being his image bearers. He made us but a little lower than the angels. He freely gave us dominion over all the earth. We are not turtles, we are not fireflies, we are not caterpillars or coyotes, we are people. We are the image bearers of the holy and majestic king of the cosmos. We have not used the gift of life for the purpose that God intended. Life on this planet has become the arena in which we daily carry out the work of cosmic treason. Our crime is far more serious, far more destructive than that of Benedict Arnold. No traitor of any king or any nation has even approached the wickedness of our treason before God. Sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. 
And if you ever thought of sin as cosmic treason, it's a strong statement. What it's saying is God, God made you. God breathed life into you. God sustained you. God keeps this planet together so we don't go spinning off into outer space. And moment by moment, day by day, day God, God slowly cares for you. And he gives you more and more evidence of who he is. And he calls you to trust him and you were created to worship him. And yet whenever you say, God, your rules don't apply to me. God, your ways don't apply to me. God, your presence isn't needed by me. God, your goodness is unappreciated by me. And you simply go your, other, your own way. Eventually what God says is, if you want to go your own way, then I'll let you go your own way until you're in a place where you're completely separated from me for all of eternity. And yet here's what we know. In the face of that cosmic treason, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the good news. Christ died for the ungodly. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our treason, God sent his only son to die on the cross for us, that we might live forever with him. Friends, when we were weak, Christ was strong. When we were sinners, Christ was sinless. When we were enemies of God, the Son of God came to us. There's a story of a famous painter that was commissioned to paint a scene of a major city. And in that, in that painting, he really wanted to capture the essence of the city and what it looked like. And so he went to one of the street people of that city and invited him to come and have his figure painted into the painting of the city so that it'd be captured. And so he invited him, came, gave him a time to show up. And when the, the man showed up for, uh, to have his picture painted, as soon as he arrived, he was sent away because he had cleaned himself up. He had taken a shower, he had, he had brushed his hair, he had changed his clothes and made himself look like everyone else and made himself look uh, more appealing. But he was needed in the painting as a beggar. And he'd only been invited to come be in the painting as a beggar. And he was sent away because he didn't want to come as he really was. Friends, for us to understand our salvation, for us to be found, we have to understand first that we're lost. We have to stand first that we need saving. In order to, to meet a savior, you have to come as you are. Christ died for the ungodly. That's good news for you and me. It means he died for you and for me. It's why he came, it's why he died, and it's why he left us here. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that you have not left us in our sin, but in the midst of our cosmic treason against you. Father, we just confess we do not value you as you should be valued. Father, we do not love you as you should be loved. We do not serve you as you should be served. We do not obey you as you should be obeyed. We do not treasure you. We do not fix our eyes upon you. We do not, we do not sing your praises. We do not rejoice in you. We do not rest in you. We do not, we do not delight in you as you ought to be delighted in. And yet you love us. Father, while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, you sent your son to rescue us. Father, let that sink into our hearts. Father, if there's one here today who does not know that grace, who does not know that Savior and has not made you 
truly his or her Lord. Father, might today be the day that they confess their need and they see you and receive the gift of your salvation. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.